This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, uh, Jamal, to all of our listeners and our viewers from wherever they are in the world, from here in the Bay to the Middle East, North Africa, Africa proper, Europe and beyond, Latin America, wherever you are in the world, the COVID epidemic and the virus spread has gotten much worse since our last show. We'll be coming back to that later on in the show today, but we have a lot of other really important things that we're going to talk about, including a great interview about BDS, the kind of really interesting decision taken by President Erdogan of Turkey, you know, in terms of his architectural and religious kind of ideas about what he wants to do with... Uh, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would say nationalistic. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to give him a little bit of a benefit of that, but clearly nationalistic ideas. And then later on in the show, Jamal, we'll come back and we'll talk about the, I mean, we continue to report from Northern California in our shelter in place location, but each week the situation continues to worsen significantly. We'll come back at that at the end of the show, but we should get to this uh, really important interview on BDS. That's right, just uh, three human rights activists, two Jewish-Israeli dissidents, and a Palestinian from Gaza are actually now facing trial in Berlin for disrupting an event which was held in June 2017. So this has been ongoing for the past three years. The case is coming into trial. It has been like tried, appealed, and so forth. It's coming back into, in, in tri- into trial in uh, August of this year, they disrupted this event at the Humboldt University uh, in Berlin for a member of the Israeli Knesset, Eliza Lavi. Their case is now known as the Humboldt Three. Roni Balkan is one of those dissidents. He spoke to us from Palestine. Let's watch. As the reality of Israel's pending annexation of parts of the West Bank looms and apartheid practices continue on the ground, activists who speak up about Israel's crimes against humanity face state persecution, even in so-called Western democracies. Three human rights activists, two Jewish-Israeli dissidents and a Palestinian, are facing trial in Berlin for disrupting an event which was held in June 2017 at the Humboldt University for a member of the Israeli Knesset, Aliza Lavi, the three activists were charged with two counts of criminal offenses. Uh, I think uh, trespassing is one and assault. The three say that they protested her complicity in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Joining us from his shelter in place because of the COVID-19 now uh, from Palestine, one of those activists, Rani Barkan, who describes himself as a privileged Israeli Jew living in the belly of the apartheid beast. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Rani. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jamal, for having me. So first, I want to start with your case in, in Berlin, because it's still pending. And uh, so what are the latest updates? Uh, what really happened, just briefly, for our listeners on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM, and of course, on, for our viewers on Facebook and uh, YouTube? So we are actually facing a trial, uh, which is uh, 
scheduled for August 3rd. Uh, this will not be the first time we're going to court on that matter. Uh, in 2019, we had a couple of hearings. Uh, it was in March 2019, uh, where we were taken to court, the three that you mentioned, uh, for criminal charges of trespassing and assault. Uh, since we went to disrupt uh, the talk of uh, an Israeli member of Knesset, who was also the head of the anti-BDS lobby in the Israeli parliament. She was also uh, taking part in overseeing the massacre of Gaza in 2014, where 2,200 people were murdered, including 550 children, 89 families that were completely obliterated. And if that is not bad enough, she was also the head of the Israeli mission to Strasbourg, to the European Committee, which basically they, uh, where she defended, Isra defended Israeli crimes, uh, including the torture and uh, arrest of uh, Palestinian minors, and including the shooting of uh, unarmed demonstrators in Gaza. So this is uh, who we were demonstrating against, actually disrupting her uh, explicit propaganda uh, talk. She went on a mission, uh, an anti-BDS mission in Germany, and we were there to express our dissent, uh, telling her I stood up uh, after a few minutes that she was, that she was uh, speaking. Um, we can go into the details, but uh, after a few minutes that she was speaking, I stood up and said that she was not a legitimate representative. She was a representative of a criminal apartheid regime. I was holding the UN report on Israeli apartheid in my hand, which squarely blames Israel for practicing the crime of apartheid, which is a crime against humanity. I quoted from, the, from that report. I even handed her the report as I was escorted out of that room a few minutes later. Then my colleague, uh, Stavit Sinai, she's also an Israeli dissident. She stood up. She spoke mostly in Hebrew, accusing uh, um, Aliza Lavi of uh, these crimes that I mentioned. She told her that she has the blood of the children of Gaza on her hands. And she was taken out. She was actually, uh, while being escorted out, she was also punched in the face. So if there was any assault taking place, it was against us, the demonstrators, against Tavi. Your, your friend, just to be clear, your friend uh, was assaulted in the face, not yes. the MK. Yes, exactly. As she was... Uh, taken out, and we have it all on the video, not the, not that punching in the face, because that happened at a little later stage, but uh, most of that we have on video, and everyone is invited to go to read our statement and watch that incident. And then finally, Majid Abu Salama, he's uh, a Palestinian from Gaza. He was sitting throughout that uh, ordeal, throughout that uh, lecture. During the Q&A session, he asked a question, or he gave a a long question or a little speech, and then eventually he left of his own accord. For that, all three of us are now taken to court, which started in 2019. We're accused of trespassing and assault, even though this was a public event, so it's not clear how we were trespassing, and there is no one that claims to have been assaulted. So this is somewhat of a victimless crime. There were two hearings in Germany in 2019, the judge could not arrive at a decision. According to her, to her, she didn't have time for another hearing. And because of German bureaucracy, the moment that uh, um, there is no hearing within three weeks, then the whole thing starts over. And this is what we are facing now. Again, the prolong prolonging of this uh, legal uh, ordeal and our next court case will be in August, on August 3rd, and everyone is invited to join us. So what, what were you doing in Germany? I mean, the, the three of you, uh, 
why did this happen in Germany? I mean, did you go specifically to Berlin or you were living in, in Berlin at the time? Yes, yeah, so we are all based in Berlin these days. I mean, I'm now speaking to you from Palestine, but I am uh, still uh, considered to be uh, living in Berlin. Personally, I, I moved to Berlin because I feel that this is where I can be most effective in challenging uh, Zionism and challenging Israeli crimes. Uh, and all three of us, um, and the other two, Stavit and Najed, uh, are students. Uh, Stavit uh, actually finished her uh, PhD recently in a German university, and now um, we, are, uh, we, we are simply based in Berlin and obviously active um, on many causes, including obviously for Palestinian rights and against uh, the Israeli crimes that unfortunately Germany is very much involved in. And this is personally why I'm in Berlin, because I see that place, Germany as a whole, and Berlin in particular, as being uh, pretty much the last standing bastion for Zionism. Uh, they are the most uh, supportive of, or blindly supporting Israel no matter what. And this, is, this goes as far as the German notion of what is called the Staatsraison, the reasoning of the state of Germany, according to German society, which is something that is above any law, the reasoning of existence for the German state, post-Nazi German state, is to protect the state of Israel no matter what. And that no matter what is very important in that context. So, um, I mean, you as, a, as an Israeli, I mean, we've talked before, we've had you on the show, you're, uh, you're a supporter of the boycott, divestment uh, and mm -hmm. sanctions movement, the BDS targeting Israel. Why do you think that this is an effective uh, way to bring attention to what's happening in, in Palestine? I mean, it, it looks like, because I've seen there are uh, now laws, especially in the United States and Europe, mm -hmm. targeting activists like yourself because of BDS, when people were applauded and, and praised when they did the same thing targeting apartheid South Africa. Exactly. And I'm, I'm very happy that you make this connection because this is uh, pretty, much, pretty, pretty much what it's about. Um, I would be concerned if you wouldn't be targeted for this type of action. It means that the, the targeting of activists throughout the world, you mentioned the US and Germany as examples, uh, the legislation, there is the whole uh, lawfare that we are uh, facing, that basically uh, there is a, a very intense effort at legislating laws in order to curb freedom of expression, freedom of political organizing and so on. In Germany, you know that the German Bundestag uh, passed a resolution, which is not a law, but it is uh, still stating very clearly that BDS is anti-Semitic. And not a single member of the German parliament voted against that. Wow. In, certain media, in certain media, they tried to say that there were uh, some uh, parliamentarians in Germany that were against that. That is not true because there were actually three motions being uh, voted on. Each group in the parliament offered their version, you know, and they were competing among themselves who is a better friend of Israel, basically. Mm -hmm. So there were three motions being voted on, uh, all equating BDS with anti-Semitism, all clearly oppo uh, in opposition to freedom of expression, and even in opposition to um, basically the European constitution or the European, basically the European notion of uh, freedom of expression. And still, um, there was no one in that parliament that said anything against that. So, so this is the case in Germany. Now, uh, the fact that we are being targeted only 
tells me that uh, we are doing something that is effective, uh, that they are concerned enough that they need to take us to court. And this is also quoting specifically Aliza Laviv that we were um, um, demonstrating against. Uh, you know that there is actually a ministry uh, in Israel uh, which is called the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, but its Hebrew name also has the name Hasbara in it. Hasbara is basically an, uh, an Israeli euphemism for propaganda. Mm -hmm. So there is a, an entire ministry of propaganda whose sole mission is to target uh, the BDS campaign, to target uh, people like myself and any activist who speaks up about Palestinian rights. This is as scary as it is for Israel. So they're investing all this money and all this energy and go around the world speaking about trying to sell Israel like you sell toothpaste and so on, instead of simply acknowledging that this land that I'm sitting on right now is not only uh, a land for one and only one type of people, but rather a land for all the sons and daughters of the land, all the 20 million, roughly 20 million sons and, sons and daughters of this land, which, you know, they are also part of given all the com complexity involved, being colonizers and occupiers and so on for the past seven decades, we are, we are not uh, denying their right to live here, but as equals, no more than that. This is, and by demanding equality, uh, basically this, simply by demand, demanding equality and the rights of minorities and multiculturalism, but simply by doing that, we are abolishing Zionism because Zionism is based on the exact opposite notions of that. Zionism and the Zionist project in Palestine is all about not only creating a state for one type of people, which is bad enough, but it is also about the notion that this is for one and only one type of people at the expense of all the others. So the notion of exclusivity is core, it is inherent to the Zionist project in Palestine. Mm -hmm. And anyone trying to defend what this project is about um, is either um, um, lying, is either doing some sort of propaganda, uh, or simply doesn't understand what, what, what this is really all about. Mm -hmm. So again, so I will repeat, by demanding equality, I am destroying Zionism. As simple as that. So, uh, I mean, Germany prides itself as now a liberal democracy in Europe. And uh, yet, they're basically censoring your freedom of ex expression. I mean, mm -hmm. you, exactly. you, that's, that's what they've been doing. Now, I want to know the difference because I'm really not an expert on German politics. But one thing I know that they do also have a, a, an uptick in, in anti-Semitism, you know, mm -hmm. by neo-Nazis and, and other groups targeting Jews, immigrants, people of color. Right, and, and violently in a way, but then they're censoring a, a, a Jewish person who is basically critical uh, of, of uh, Zionism. How do they reconcile? I'm trying to, th to kind of wrap my head around the fact that, uh, you know, between, how do they reconcile the difference between what happens in the government and about the young groups in Germany, because I see a lot of groups who are outspoken, who support basically the Palestinian cause. I mean, is there a difference between the government and the people on this matter? Unfortunately, I have to say that um, German society uh, is pretty much represented by uh, German politics. Uh, and obviously there are different voices, but they are regarded as fringe, 
they are basically, in a sense, survivors of German educate, the German educational system. Uh, the, there is a whole type of indoctrination uh, in Germany which uh, doesn't allow any form of real criticism or even mild criticism of Israel for that matter. Um, now, we have to remember that there is a lot of racism in Germany because I think that there is something inherent uh, in the psyche, in the German mentality that is uh, built around uh, supremacy and racism and this has not been uh, dealt with uh, post uh, the Nazi era. Actually, by supporting Israel, by blindly supporting Israel, this is an easy fix for German society in order not to look itself in the mirror and in order not to actually deal with their own issues. So those who, uh, uh, I said that there is racism, and actually the racism that I do experience in Germany is not at all towards uh, Jews. I actually haven't experienced any anti-Semitic uh, um, sentiment, other than from Zionists, by the way. Uh, I experienced anti-Semitism from Zionism, but putting that aside, from Zionists, but putting that aside, I haven't experienced anti-Semitism, but I have seen quite a bit of Islamophobia. Mm -hmm of the place. So, uh, and we have to remember that, yes, of course, we have to uh, approach it to confront uh, anti-Semitism, just as we have to tackle all forms of racism, which anti-Semitism is one aspect of. And by and confronting racism is exactly goes hand in hand with confronting Zionism, because Zionism is inherently about ethnic supremacy. As Zionism is about ethnic supremacy, just like the Ku Klux Klan is about white supremacy. And Zionism and the KKK, and I give that uh, as an analogy, and some people have a bit of an issue with that. And I think that, again, maybe they have to reconsider their notion about what Zionism is actually all about. Zionism is, is, is based on, on the whole notion of ethnic supremacy, of differentiating between types of people, between some people who are regarded as the uber-mentioned, the, the superhumans, and mm -hmm. the untermentioned, the subhumans. And they do this based on ethnicity. And also, they don't have a very good definition for who fits into each category, but they still do it. And, and this is very similar to the discourse of white supremacists. The only difference is that in Israel, we have an entire state that is built on that notion mm -hmm. of supremacy. We're, we're talking about <laughs> Israel now, since you are there on the ground. What do you think uh, uh, of Netanyahu's... Uh, so-called annexation plan, has it uh, turned into a fiasco? I mean, there was this big euphoria about it now. It's kind of like fizzling away. I, I mean, I'm not sure if this is the case or they're just buying some time. I believe that they are buying some time. And also, unfortunately, I think that they can do pretty much what they want without uh, suffering too much repercussions, uh, too uh, so, so, so I think that um, they are kind of trying to reevaluate their situation here uh, because there was there was they got some heat for for the annexation plan and so on and uh, but 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 I think that it is still uh, on the table. Now we do have to remember that in practice it doesn't change so much on the ground. So most of the things that the annexation plan offers are things that are anyway being carried out by Israel. The annexation plan is, the, is a direct uh, continuation of the recently uh, legislated Jewish nation state law. The Jewish nation state law, if you remember, uh, got a lot of attention in the media, a lot of criticism was leveled against Israel for that law, which says certain things in a very explicit way, 
uh, and many people said, ah, because of that law, Israel is becoming an apartheid state. And what I have to say both about the annexation and about that Jewish nation state law is that actually Israel is not becoming an apartheid state. It was always an apartheid state. It was always practicing the same things that are offered in the annexation plan. The only thing is that things are becoming more explicit, more sort of, you know, they are now out in the open. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. Whatever was implicit has now become explicit with that law and with that incentive plan, whether it is implemented or not. I hope it will not be implemented, but I'm saying that even if it will be implemented, it just doesn't change so many things on the ground as people think. The difference is that those who still have some, some fantasy about Israel being somewhat liberal, or maybe that there is some democratic basis in Israel proper, and then the rest, the only problem is with the occupation, with the minor occupation, as I call it, the occupation of 67, those people who, have, who try to legitimize what Israel is doing within uh, what is regarded as Israel proper, or what we call Palestine 48, they have a problem with the annexation mm -hmm. because the annexation all of a sudden turns the whole state, the whole land, as being an occupying, annexing entity, etc., and that doesn't look good, and that is unjustifiable, and so on. So, so as I said, things are become, are going from implicit to explicit, and with the moment it is explicit, it is much more difficult to defend such a project. Well, uh, I remember when I was uh, working on my documentary with my Israeli colleague David Michaelis, and we were talking to different people on the ground at the time, talking about the binational state was kind of like a shock mm -hmm. to most Israelis even talking about it. And, and, and people were in denial about the, at the time they were building the wall, the apartheid wall, people were in denial. Now these days, I mean, we have people like yourself and, and, and others, and then recently in the United States, like uh, Peter Beinart uh, writing his now famous article. Uh, is this making a difference with Israelis? I mean, are they now like uh, those who, who have been in denial and burying their heads in the sand? Are they now like facing the reality that they are living in an apartheid society? I think that the difference for Israelis is when Israel is transitioning from that implicit to explicit state, and explicit, many ex things are becoming explicit. Um, we can go into it, but it will be a long list. Um, then those who up until now saw themselves as being, you know, the good guys, uh, we are peace-loving and Zionist, we are liberal and Zionist, all these oxymorons, uh, then they, they find themselves a bit at odds uh, with this situation, and they are trying, they need to reevaluate the situation. Um, but... I think that this is happening because things are becoming more explicit, not because of articles like Peter Beinart and others. These articles by Beinart are actually a, affecting more of the perception outside of Israel-Palestine rather than inside, which is actually very important. The reason that I'm uh, active in doing BDS work, etc., is exactly because I care much more about what the world thinks about the situation rather than what Israelis think. I think that actually their views will only become relevant once we end Israeli crimes and then we'll have to build something together based on equality, multiculturalism and so on. At the moment we have to abolish apartheid, we have to abolish Israeli crimes and for that we need your help, we need the help of the world to do this. So articles like Barnard's. Uh, okay, I have to acknowledge uh, that Barnard is 
going through a certain process. And we see many designers doing that. And this process for Bionic is taking decades. But throughout, he, he, he basically invested his entire life to being an apologist for Israel, to defending Israeli crimes over and over again. And the worst type uh, of propaganda is exactly that which, you know, which tries to say, yes, Israel is doing something, um, some things that are bad, but, but look, inherently there is something good that we have to protect. There is something that is still, we have to support about Zionism and that Zionist project, etc. rather than acknowledging what the Zionist project is really all about. And Bayonet is still not there. He still hasn't realized. He still hasn't abandoned Zionism. Or in other words, he hasn't chosen humanism over Zionism. Mm -hmm. The moment he does that, I, then, then and only then, I, I will actually be able to give him credit. Until that point in time, he is still acting as an apologist. And I can dissect uh, the very long article that he wrote, but basically, and I wrote about that on Twitter and Facebook, etc. But... Um, Basically, you mentioned binationalism, for example. Binationalism, and he mentions it as well, and he offers that as, a, as an option for the future. The only problem is that binationalism can work in a place like Belgium, for example. Binationalism, in the context of Israel-Palestine, is not feasible for the simple reason that that notion of Zionism, that notion of so-called Israeli nationality, uh, is based inherently about denying the other type of people, especially if they are the indigenous people to this land. So, so trying to claim that there is some sort of a binationalistic uh, entity that is that can be built in the future by legitimizing that ethnic supremacist notion of one of the two nationalities is unacceptable. It also doesn't work. It won't work. It will never work. Actually, I also have to say another thing. At the very least, we have to speak about tri-nationalism, not bi-nationalism. Because not only that we have the Zionists and the Palestinians who, um, you know, who speak their, let's put it in, quote-unquote, a nationalistic discourse, um, there is also a, at least a third group, which are the anti-Zionist Jews. And there's quite a few of them, and they don't want anything to do with the state. They are not going to participate in any of that. They are not participating in the parliament and none of that. And they actually live as a secluded community exactly for self-preservation because the Zionist state doesn't uh, uh, respect even their rights as Jews because they are not Zionists. They are anti-Zionists. And you see the worst, the worst expressions of anti-Semitism, really, I mean, things that are could be regarded as clearly the worst expressions of Zionism, of, of anti-Semitism uh, in 2020, for example, happening in Jerusalem by the Israeli police against these anti-Zionist Jews. So, so, so the Zionist state doesn't even protect the, the rights of Jews. It, they only protect the rights of certain types of Jews. So, but, but in any case, why speak of a nationalistic discourse when we can do something far better than that and demand full equality and full rights for all the people of this land. And I mentioned before, there are 20 million, roughly 20 million stakeholders. Only roughly 7 million are among the privileged group that I belong to. Mm -hmm. And then there's another roughly 6 or 7 million who are uh, living on this land, but as clearly unequal, either unequal citizens or military subjects living in very harsh conditions in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And then there's another 6 million who are actually 
living as refugees in forced exile for the past seven decades for the sole crime of having the wrong ethnicity. So when we talk about resolving the situation, we must take all 20 million people into account. If we don't do that, we are not dealing with the situation. And actually, we are, if we are only talking about a certain portion, a certain segment of this population, then we're actually helping Zionist propaganda. And this is what we hear a lot from people like Beinart and others. First of all, they focus only on the occupation of the West Bank, what I call the minor occupation. Not because I belittle that type of occupation, it is a, a brutal and harsh occupation, but it's not even the main issue. The issue is not the occupation of 67, it is the occupation of 48 and the apartheid and the colonialist structure of that state. This is what it is about. 67, the, the occupation of 67 is only the, the latest in that chain of, of uh, occupations and annexations. It's actually not the latest. There's been even later uh, parts uh, coming up. And, but, but, so, so this is what we have to do. We have to demand full equality. We have to demand the rights of all the people. You're absolutely and, right. I mean, it's what Zionism is really all about. Yeah, it's it's really about uh, demanding full equality. Otherwise, uh, you're not going to resolve the problem. Listen, Rani, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time to speaking to us. Uh, I want to also uh, please keep us updated with you uh, about your case in in Berlin. You said in August is the next. Uh, Court, yes, 3rd of August is the next hearing. Please go to medium.com slash Humboldt 3 uh, to get updated. Uh, we also have a fundraiser because we need to cover our legal expenses that are mounting. So if any of the viewers is uh, willing to help us, uh, you're more than welcome. We have a GoFundMe uh, campaign. That's also GoFundMe slash F slash Humboldt 3. Um, but please, yes, get updated and we will definitely uh, keep that medium link uh, updated with the latest and hopefully we will be able um, to to really challenge and both morally and legally israeli crimes in the german court uh, and this is what this is what we're trying to do uh, it's not so much about being taken to court as much as we have an opportunity to speak about the things that really matter well uh, keep up the good work uh, and 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 uh, i know a lot of people are following you and uh, hearing you out, and, and hopefully the German court will come to its senses and, and, and finds you not guilty for the, basically expressing your opinion. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Well, that's the voice of Ronnie Balkan, um, a BDS uh, activist uh, from Palestine. He and one other Israeli uh, Jewish individual and Palestinian uh, were arrested in 2017. So listen, Jamal, it was a great interview. I, I have a question for you. And, you know, this came out a little bit in the interview. I think the political landscape has changed pretty dramatically from 2017 until 2020. A lot has happened. I wonder if that's changing the nature of the uh, lawsuit and how it's being perceived right now. Well, uh, Rani, you know, of course, describes uh, the situation in Germany very clearly. And he talks about, actually, there is a difference, of course, between the people and the government. But the government is, uh, in fact, censoring freedom of speech. That's what he was saying. I mean, here he was, an Israeli Jewish, complaining about a, an Israeli member of the Parliament, who he thinks had blood on her hands, that she was responsible for the killing of Palestinians, for the uh, appropriation of land, for the ethnic cleansing. And 
you know, in Berlin, you come, or in Germany in general, if you criticize Israel, then you face uh, more repercussion than if you did so in Israel itself. Right. Like, had he interrupted her in, say, Tel Aviv, it would have been easier on him. Absolutely. So they've been going, because Germany, because of uh, its involvement, you know, in the past with the Holocaust, etc., uh, they go out of their way to silence any criticism of Israel. And so that's, if we're talking about this, I don't think as far as Germany, and he said also the racism in Germany, there's an uptick of racism in Germany. Right. And he said, actually, it's not, it's not mostly, it's not, there is anti-Semitism, of course, but it's mostly Islamophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment. Right. So you're, he's battling, you know, you have these different factors. By the way, he also talked about the Peter Beinart interview, and he has right. his own criticism regarding this, uh, because, you know, he said the same thing. Yeah, I appreciate this kind of change in the attitude, but uh, Peter Beinart and others, because remember, uh, Rani grew up in there. He's not like uh, a backseat, uh, whatever, quarterback sitting all the way in, in the United States. He lived there and he considered himself, you know, and a Jewish, of course, is proud of his Jewish heritage, but he's anti-Zionist and he wants to have he is a big believer in a secular state for all its people. That's the only solution that he sees. He's been fighting for this back on the ground there and also in Europe uh, where I think um, his friend, uh, uh, she is the other, uh, the other uh, Jewish-Israeli dissident. She's, I think, completing her PhD in, in Berlin or one of them is completing. So they're students. They were, you know, partaking at the university. And uh, and he goes back and forth, so he's also living there, and and so th- so what he was describing is that uh, number one he also says because that's the subject you and I will be talking about is the pretty much the only answer what they do is and the only pressure you can exercise now is to put that BDS pressure on absolutely on absolutely it was a really good interview. And it really speaks, I think, um, to the power of BDS. And we're going to kind of transition into that in a few minutes. I want to come back to this point because I do think that there has been a substantial change, not not for the better necessarily, between 2017 when this first happened and now 2020. There is an increase in Islamophobia. There's an increase in anti-immigrant sentiment. And there's this kind of you know, resurgence of um, kind of German and European nationalism. I mean, that's going to be a subtext of our uh, of our show in, in many segments. And um, it'll be kind of interesting to see how this plays out. Berlin historically has always been the most progressive, you know, of the of the major cities. It's now the capital of Germany, obviously, and has always been the most progressive. But uh, not sure how this is going to play out, Jamal. It's going to be kind of interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, well, we're going to maybe we'll have to have a follow up interview with him because, uh, as I said, the case comes back into court in August. Yeah, and, it's coming up. And, and they face they face criminal charges, right. even though they themselves, there is a video which uh, we will be showing they were themselves who were under attack. That's they were right. accused of uh, disrupting the peace and uh, and violence. 
which they didn't, you know, basically. So this is a this is a criminal charge that can end them up in in jail. Well, let's use that as a springboard, Jamal, to talk about something that is, you know, really coming into more and more prominence. You know, the BDS. We've been talking about it for over a decade now. It's the it's Palestinian civil society and basically world civil society calling for boycott, divestment, and sanctioning of Israeli apartheid practices as the primary method and technique and tactic, if you will, to get Israel to stop its oppression of Palestinians and to stop its apartheid practices, to stop its theft of Palestinian land. And, you know, Jamal, it continues to be the most frightening thing for Israeli politicians and for the Israeli government is the BDS movement. We're in the midst of a pretty significant economic downturn globally right now. And anything that's going to hurt the Israeli brand, because I I personally don't see Israel as a state. I see it as a brand that they market internationally to for trade. I really see the BDS in this next phase, Jamal, as being really probably among the most biggest threats to um uh, Netanyahu's government to the Israeli government, because irrespective of what governments say, the people on the ground worldwide believe in the BDS movement, use the BDS movement, and are going to continue to push BDS as a way to confront Israeli apartheid practices. You're absolutely right. And remember, just then, when BDS was first launched, the uh, uh, Israel and, and Netanyahu in particular laughed at it, said this is, just a, just, this is just a fad and it's going to go away. And it didn't take that long before declaring it, and this is very important, an existential threat. Israel uses this terminology for like Iran, right? right. I- Iran is an existential threat. It's nuclear right. problem. That's why. They don't use it even for Palestinians because they know <laughs> they can control Palestinians. They are controlling Palestinians. They don't, I don't think they, they control the land. They occupy Palestinians. They oppress Palestinians. They use it for countries like Iran. In the past, maybe they used it for, uh, you know, uh, Egypt, when Egypt during uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser and so forth. So for them to use, to use it as, as, as an existential threat and create a whole ministry to combat it and fund it. And we talked about it, how also the APAC and other groups here, uh, like uh, and, 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 and benefactors like Edelson and others, they've had a big conference in Las Vegas a few years ago, raising $100 million, basically to combat BDS on college campuses. And they know that they've been losing ground on this. And that's why they have been basically activating their surrogates in Congress, which is crazy. Imagine to pass laws, Jess, to pass laws to punish people who boycott Israel, the United States. Well, I mean, I mean yeah. how, how crazier than this? I, you can't boycott, we talked about this, you can't boycott Coca-Cola, but you can't boycott a product from Israel. That's exactly right, Jamal. And this is why the next four months leading up to the election in November is so critical, because the Congress is still in the pocket of APAC completely, unequivocally, no question about it. But we're beginning to see a progressive shift in some areas, especially on the question of Palestine and the more progressive 
wing of the Democratic Party. Elliot Engel got voted out, Jamal. You know, that's, you know, that's huge. And you have the AOC block. You have the Taleb block. You have the, you know, uh, Elhan Omar block. You know, there's a well, lot there's a lot happening right now in terms of progressive politics that, you know, criminalizing BDS, I think after November, if in fact Donald Trump loses, and I still don't think that's a slam dunk, but if Donald Trump loses, then it's going to be tougher to pass legislation criminalizing the BDS. Well, especially, I mean, that's also part and parcel of our discussion last week with the Peter, like, with people like Peter Beinart and others who are saying basically that Israel is an apartheid state. So how can you criminalize BDS when you, when already members of the Jewish community, members of who he 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 describes, he still describes himself as a liberal Zionist. They yeah, are telling you yeah, what you have means. created on the ground is an apartheid. So if you make that connection between Israel and apartheid, and apartheid in South Africa, well, guess what brought down apartheid in South Africa? BDS. Absolutely, Jamal. Well, I think obviously this is, um, there's a lot of different things happening, you know, in terms of U.S. politics. I mean, obviously, Israeli politics with Benjamin Netanyahu and his indictment and, you know, his own criminal case. There's a lot of different things that can happen between now and November. Um, I will say between now and December could be a very difficult time for Palestinians. We talk about this every four years, Jamal. During the change of governments, if there is a change in government, let's say Joe Biden does win, and there's no guarantee of that, obviously. But if he does, that time period between November and January in the inauguration of the next administration and president has always brought Israel to its most vicious uh, aggressive activities against Palestinians and Palestine. So um, we need to be really ready to be on top of all these things because I do think that the next six, seven months are going to prove to be very, very intense months for the Israeli lobby, for the pro-Israel surrogates, for the Habaristas, uh, Hasbaristas, and... Um, you know, it's going to be a very active time. If they see that Trump may in fact lose Jamal, they're going to pull out all the stops to try to get as much out of Congress as possible. I think you're absolutely right. And we will be, of course, talking about this uh, more uh, as we as we see it uh, unfolding in front of our eyes. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And we also like to welcome our viewers on Facebook and on YouTube. We're going to switch gears here uh, just and talk about uh, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who wow. on Friday issued a decree ordering that the Aya Sophia, this is a great, majestic, uh, 65, I think, 100 square feet uh, structure from the 6th century in Istanbul, uh, to be opened uh, for Muslim uh, prayers. Of course, the Hagia Sophia was built as a cathedral and converted into a mosque, then into a museum, and it was constructed by Emperor Justinian in the 6th century as the central cathedral of Byzantium, uh, or the Eastern Roman Empire uh, at the time, and then the Ottomans uh, basically... 
ran over uh, uh, Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, in 1453. Just um, they had a spectacular siege, and of course, um, you know, the city fell under their command, and immediately they converted the Hagia Sophia into a mosque. Okay, where so it was now, a mosque for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the first. Uh, prayers, by the way, at the ISRV will take place on July 24th. We're talking about practically 10 days from now or less than that. Now, is that because of the Eid al-Adha or is there another reason why that is? No, there is another reason for that. You see his timing. He, this would be the anniversary of the Treaty of Lausanne. Uh-huh. Okay, that's signed by the Allied forces, the Allied forces and Turkey, which basically after Turkey lost uh, was on the losing side in World War One, right? Uh, and you know, with the Prussian Empire and the and then the Allies basically forced this treaty on it and redrew the map of basically the Middle East. That's that right. was like redrew the boundaries of mo- modern Turkey. So this is where I would say the nationalism aspect, which people are reading different things into it, because I think you know. And then you you could uh, tell me your thoughts, but I think it's has less to do with religion. Even though people say, well, you know, he's he's from the Islamists, uh, you know, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, because he's he's a, he's a he's a big player. He he wheels, yes. he likes to wheel and deal. So this is a message telling the Europeans and the Western powers, we're back. You know, we want our old glory days. You cannot just keep basically stepping over Turkey, you know, playing a game like because they've been playing, especially the EU with Turkey, like, you know, football, saying that they can be part of the EU. No, they cannot be part of the EU. So that's he he's trying to reclaim that position. And then the other part is a message also to Saudi Arabia and other players, Iran, that the center of Islam, the glory of Islam now returns to Istanbul, not Mecca. Remember when even during the Ottoman Empire, the, the Ottomans brought the le- relics of uh, some That's relics right. from the Prophet Muhammad and wherever and others and brought it into Istanbul and, and built beautiful mosques. Not just the Hagia Sophia was converted. Basically, they added the minarets and the mihrab to it and other things. But also they, they, they built the blue mosque and, and several other, other mosques. So, so he was to bring back that whole glory from the political uh, kind of aspect. And he's playing both, both sides, basically. Yeah, you know, I think, I think you're exactly right, Jamal. And I think part of what happens right now, as with a lot of leaders like uh, Erdogan, they're in a tough spot right now. There's, there's some economic, not some, there's significant economic problems going on in Turkey right now. They also have a huge refugee issue and problem that they're dealing with. In addition to that, his own popularity has taken a bit of a hit. So he has a lot of different moving parts that he has to deal with right now in terms of how he's positioning himself on the world stage. He has been, you know, being cozy with Putin quite a bit lately and has been thumbing his nose at the EU and at the United States I think you're probably right that bringing up all that nationalistic fervor is probably primary over the kind of religious element of converting this to 
or we should say reconverting this to a mosque because it was a mosque for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years after 1453. I will say, though, that I'm not sure how this is going to play, you know, in terms of the uh, home front. I, I think this is more of kind of outwardly focused because Turkey is actually having a lot of problems right now, Jamal. So my question to you, is this message, who's the audience for this? Is it national? Is it international? Who is really the audience for this announcement? Well, I think it's multiple audiences, to tell you the truth, Jess. He's sending a message to the West. Don't mess with us. And by the way, you know, because, you know, there is also a long feud between Turkey and Greece and NATO, a a member of both of them are members of NATO and the EU. And also, let's also say that this is not unusual. I mean, the great mosque of Cordoba in Spain uh, basically was the most important mosque in entire Europe, you know, and of course, under the Muslim uh, Islamic community for Andalus for centuries. And uh, Spain refuses to allow Muslims to pray there. And it's it's now a... uh, they conduct mass there, but Muslims are prevented. Greece also does not allow uh, Muslims to, to pray in many of the mosques that the Ottomans built there. E- they are either museums or um, they're just left uh, abandoned. So it's not like, I mean, this game of converting a church into a mosque and a mosque into a church, he is not no. the first one to no. do this. No, he's not. He's just, he just like picking his timing to kind of like, I think poke the eye of Europe at, at this time because of the uh, rejection of Turkey for many years to join the EU. Yeah. I th- and at, at the same time, you know, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, and, and they claim that they are the, uh, the center of Islam. And that's to me maybe, maybe less than, you know, we know also the center for Shiite Muslim is, is, uh, is uh, both Iran and Iraq, but it's more aimed at Saudi Arabia. Now, how is that going to play out? I don't think it's going to play out that well. It might be a temporary fix, but I don't think so because historically, I mean, he's really messing with something very sensitive. And I take us back and to the wisdom of uh, Khalifa Omar bin al-Khattab. Yeah. And that's if people like, even whether you're, his, you're a historical buff like me or you're a devout Muslim, you have to go back to the wisdom of Omar bin Khattab when the Muslims came into Jerusalem, in my hometown, in the year 637 A.D. At the time, just um, it was under the Byzantine, it was called Aliyah Capitolonia, and uh, the patriarch Sephronius, who was basically not only the spiritual leader, but he was in charge of the city, refused to surrender the city to anyone, not to Khaled bin al-Walid who surrounded the, the city, not to Amr bin al He asked for Amr bin al-Khattab himself to come. So he came all the way from Mecca on his camel. Right. Because he, he trusted him. that right. and, and there was, because of this, there was Al-Uhd al-Umariya, or in English it's called Omar's Assurance, which basically gave... Uh, basically, uh, the Christian population in the city, safety and security, security for their churches and whatever. So the story goes just that when it was prayer time, Patriarch Sephronius invited Omar to pray uh, with him at the Church of the Sepulchre. And Omar bin Khattab politely apologized. 
Right. And he said, I don't want to insult you. Thank you for the offer. But, and this is his, his words, and he said, I'm afraid that if I prayed there, that Muslims would overwhelm you and say, here he prayed the commander of the faithful, and they'll take over the church. So, so he let his camel wander around, and where his camel stopped, few feet away from the church, and he prayed there. And guess what? There is the mosque of Omar there. The right. Muslims built a mosque. Right. So going back to that wisdom, don't mess with the status quo. Christian churches belong to Christians. Muslim mosques belong to Muslims. And let it be at this. This is my own opinion. I don't like to play games with this. No, and I, I think, you know, that kind of wisdom from, you know, 632 could serve a lot of people really well right now, Jamal, when you think about all of the Islamophobia, anti-Muslim sentiment, kind of attacks on folks of color and communities of color all over the world. That kind of wisdom and acceptance is something we should all, you know, be, um, you know, we should all be engaged with right now. So that wisdom, albeit old, is as fresh and important now as it was in 632, Jamal. That's right. So quickly, Jess, we have a few minutes. I know you don't have good news. Let's, let's get with it. Okay, but since this is Arab talk, Jamal, I want to give you a research study that came from some Israeli researchers, which will tell you how bad things are. So the, the Israelis had so-called um, crush the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And they had flattened the curve. They had done really well. And so what the Israelis decided to do about a month ago, Jamal, is start to relax things. And so they sent kids back to school. They allowed public gatherings like weddings and things like that. And one month later, Jamal, guess what's happening among Israelis right now? It is the COVID epidemic is exploding out of control. The reason I'm saying this is that you have people in Washington, D.C. who are saying, let's send our kids back to school. There's no evidence that kids going back to school will cause any problems. Well, in fact, there's plenty of evidence to say that sending kids back to school without protections and without careful consideration of all the scientific facts could be deeply damaging. The bad news, Jamal, is one week later, the situation with the COVID virus is probably 10 times worse now than it was just a week ago. So again, we're talking about Florida, we're talking about Arizona, we're talking about Alabama, we're talking about Louisiana, we're talking about Texas, Arizona, and here in California, it is ravaging the United States, and we still don't have a national policy, which is really the reason. In fact, the governor of Oklahoma, Jamal, was one of the, you know, no, I'm not going to mandate a mask. You know, it's a personal choice, which is really a completely stupid thing to say. And now he has contracted the COVID virus. Um, it's really bad, Jamal. I don't know what else to tell you. We're on track to have probably 240,000 deaths in the United States within, you know, by the end of the year, if not sooner. It's it's out of control. And yet we still have people in Washington and we still have governors who are getting in front of people and saying, wearing a mask is a personal choice. I'm not going to mandate it. So the lack of national leadership on this from the Trump administration and from the president himself is not only damaging, but it's killing people every day. 
Well, uh, it's terrible. Like I, I know every time we speak about it, Jess, and the news keep getting worse. The message is really for those, I don't want to use the words, but wear the damn mask and stay at home. And we cannot send children to school until we bend that curve, you know, right? It's, 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 it's really, but here's the thing, Jamal. It tells you how narcissistic not only the Trump administration is and the president is, but how narcissistic many Americans are. For an American or any human being to say, it's my right to not wear a mask, is really speaking a kind of um, selfishness and narcissism. It's not about the individual person. It's not about you. It's about protecting your community. It's about protecting your family. It's about protecting people around you. To, to really think about it as a free speech or a freedom of choice thing is the message that is causing, I think, the harm uh, for you know a lot of places in the United States. And I'm sorry to tell you this, Jamal, this is not even the worst of it. It's, it, 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 it's going to get much worse. Well, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest uh, episodes, and all our archive is there for you. And uh, we want to thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.